the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. WTBN, Pinellas Park. Up next is Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. Here's how one Bible teacher explained the narrowness of the Christian life. He wrote, the Christian life is narrow from the beginning to the end. There is no such thing as a holiday in the spiritual realm. We can take a holiday from our usual work, but there's no such thing as a holiday in the spiritual realm. It's always narrow. As it starts, so it continues. It is a fight of faith, always right to the end. It is the narrow way, and on each side there are enemies. There are things oppressing us and people attacking us all along the very end. C.S. Lewis said it well, but perhaps a little harshly when he wrote, An open mind in questions that are not ultimate is useful. But an open mind about ultimate foundations, either of theoretical or practical reason, is idiocy. If a man's mind is open on these things, let his mouth at least be shut. In other words, variety makes life richer until it enters the critical areas of the infallibility of the Bible or how a person inherits eternal life. Jesus made it quite clear that there is only one way into the kingdom of heaven. Hello, this is Peter Silseth, and I would like to welcome you to Verse by Verse with Pastor Teacher Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. Pastor Steve has been serving at Lakeside for over 27 years, and these daily broadcasts are an expansion of that ministry. Over the past three days, we have been mining the truths found in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, It's part of the Sermon on the Mount. Let's continue our consideration of those two verses and the choice Jesus has placed before us. Let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 7 as we continue our study in the Sermon on the Mount. We'll look at two verses this morning. We actually looked at one last week and we'll look at one this morning, but we'll combine it and so you'll see how they connect in the flow and and all that goes into this. Matthew chapter 7, beginning of verse 13, Jesus said, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. These words by Jesus are the beginning of the end to his sermon on the mount. For nearly three chapters, he has instructed his followers on how to conduct themselves as citizens of his kingdom in a fallen, sinful world. He's taught them about the high standards of his righteousness concerning such issues as anger, morality, divorce, integrity, vengeance, loving our enemies, giving to the poor, prayer, fasting, laying up treasures in heaven, worrying, and how to help others deal with sin in their, in their own lives. But starting with these two verses, verses 13 and 14, and really continuing until the, the end of chapter 7, Jesus turns his attention 
upon those in the crowd that day who, who first heard him who were not his disciples. These were the unbelievers who sat listening to his words that day on that hillside near the Sea of Galilee. They listened, they perhaps admired, but they had not yet committed themselves to being his followers. And so after instructing his disciples on the high standards of righteousness in his kingdom, it's as if Jesus pauses after verse 12, turns to those who were not yet his disciples and says, that's it. You've heard it all. You've heard the sermon. Now, what are you going to do about it? And that's where we are. The Lord then proceeds to tell them that the time has come for them to make a decision as to whether or not they're going to embrace him as their king and therefore live by his words or whether they're going to continue being their own kings and live by their own words and beliefs and opinions and standards that they've arbitrarily set for themselves and to help them to understand what it means to embrace him as king and to be a part of his kingdom, Jesus explains a number of key truths about salvation. Now, I'm using the term salvation and kingdom synonymously. Key, these are key truths about his kingdom, about salvation in him, all couched in the language of going through a very narrow gate that opens up to a very narrow road that leads to eternal life. Now, in order to press home the urgency of salvation, Jesus not only commands, in verse 13, he commands unbelievers to enter through this narrow gate, but he also presents the alternative to salvation in the form of another gate. That's what verse 13 is about. He said, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. This is the alternative to salvation. It's a wide gate that that opens up into a very broad way of life in which people can believe and do whatever they want. And though most people, Jesus said, travel this broad road, it is the way he said that leads to destruction, which is another way of saying eternal judgment in hell. And so there are two choices that stand before us. That's what Jesus is giving us, two choices. You have two gates, or I should say two set of choices that stand before us, two gates that lead to two ways of life, travel by two distinct groups of people that lead to two eternal destinations. Those are the options. And every one of us must choose which gate we're going to enter. It's not enough to listen to this sermon. It's not enough to admire Jesus. It's not enough to to go to church and hear the words and even admire the principles taught in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said you have to choose. Choose whether you're going to enter one gate or stay and go through another gate. And if you decide to enter that narrow gate, you do it by faith in him alone. Now, to help us make the right choice, Jesus takes these two verses, and they're only two verses, but they're, they're full of information, and he takes them and explains four key truths about salvation. Four key truths about salvation. Last week, we looked at the first one, and this week, we're going to look at the third. But I do want to, want to mention and, and remind each, uh, each of us of what we looked at last week, so we'll see how these truths connect. The first truth that Jesus taught about salvation is that entrance into his kingdom is like walking through a narrow gate. That's what he means in verse 13. Enter through the narrow gate. Now, as I told you last week, in keeping with the culture of his day in which small narrow doors or gates were used by local citizens to re-enter their cities at night because the wide gates would have been closed for their own protection, Jesus compares entering his kingdom with entering through one of these narrow 
gates. And the primary thought behind this comparison, this very graphic picture, is that just as the narrowness of a physical gate required leaving excess baggage behind because you couldn't take yourself and your bags through at the same time, so entrance into his kingdom requires us to leave the baggage of our sin outside. What the Lord is saying is that to enter into his kingdom, you have to turn away from your own sin. Everything you're aware of is sin, you can't take into his kingdom. You forsake it, you turn from it. In other words, you leave your old way of life outside of his kingdom or you don't enter his kingdom. You don't enter it on your terms, you enter it on his terms. And his terms is the term of repentance. Repentance and faith are part of the same package. Two sides of the same coin. Now, As we said, the Bible refers to this turning from sin, though the word is not mentioned here, but the concept is as repentance. And though some Bible teachers today dilute the biblical doctrine of repentance and even deny the importance of repentance for salvation, the Bible is in silence about it. The Bible is emphatic about this issue of repentance. In fact, the very first statement that Jesus gave at the onset of his ministry, his public ministry, was repent for the kingdom is at hand. And at the close of his earthly ministry, he sent his disciples out to proclaim the message of repentance. At the beginning of his ministry, his message was repent. At the end of his ministry, he says to his apostles what we call the Great Commission. Normally, we think of the Great Commission as just go and make disciples. But in Luke's gospel, uh, chapter 24, verses 46 and 47, Jesus defines it a little bit more. And and there he says, thus it is written that the Messiah or the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning with Jerusalem. So the Lord says that here's the message that, that starts at Jerusalem and goes to all the world. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins based on the death, burial and resurrection of the Messiah. And the apostles obeyed exactly what Jesus said. They did call people to repent. Remember Peter on the day of Pentecost stands up and in front of 3,000 people who say, what, what will we do now? Because they realized, these Jewish leaders, that they had crucified their own Messiah. And Peter said, repent and be baptized. Repent, turn from your sin. You recognize it as sin, turn from it. Repentance was also at the heart of Paul's ministry, his preaching ministry. Remember in Acts chapter 17, he stands before those pagan philosophers at the city, in the city of Athens, and he says this, Acts 17, 30, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. That's the message Paul said I preach. This is what God is declaring, that everyone everywhere should repent. In his final message to the elders, from the church at Ephesus, Paul reminded them what his ministry had been like amongst them. And he said, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and and Greeks. Here's what he solemnly testified, folks, of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul said, that was my message amongst you to both Jews and Greeks. I preached the same thing. Repent towards God. And have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now understand that I want you to know this. The reason that I'm spending so much time in pressing home the importance of repentance. I did it last week and I'm doing it today. Is that I'm convinced. 
I'm convinced that in light of much of today's shallow teaching about salvation, that really does neglect the issue of repentance as a turning from sin and a necessity for salvation, that there are some people, in fact many people, professing Christians, professing believers, who think that they're saved when they aren't saved. Years ago, Dr. Harry Ironside, longtime pastor of the Moody Memorial Church in Chicago, wrote a book about this. I think it was called Except Ye Repent. In fact, that was the name of it, Except Ye Repent. And in that book, he wrote of the great danger of this type of shallowness in evangelism. Here's what he said. Shallow preaching that does not grapple with the terrible fact of man's sinfulness and guilt, calling on man everywhere to repent, results in shallow conversions. By that, by the way, he goes on to say it's not conversions at all. Shallow conversions. And so we have myriads of glib-tongued professions of faith who give no evidence of regeneration whatsoever. Speaking of salvation by grace, they manifest no grace in their lives. Loudly declaring that they are justified by faith alone, they fail to remember that faith without works is dead. And that justification by works before men is not to be ignored as though it were in contradiction to justification by faith before God. In other words, what he's saying is there are many today who claim to know Christ and they're saved by grace, but there are no evidences of regeneration in their lives. There's no fruit of repentance. They never repented at the onset of their salvation experience. And the fact that, that they're not saved is that they don't repent of their sin now. They don't sin. It's everybody else's fault. They don't see it. They just continue in their lives. And yet they may even preach the gospel. They may even evangelize others. They may boast about how they know Christ. They may even have led people to faith in Christ. But they do not know him. Their lives reveal it. And so in commanding us to enter his kingdom through a narrow gate, Jesus wants us to understand that the narrowness of salvation demands repentance and faith in him. And I hope that when you proclaim the gospel to someone, that you'll do that. You'll make sure that you tell them that whatever they're aware of is sin in their lives. They they must turn from it and trust Christ as they're turning from their sin. And, And you might think, well, what if they say, well, then I'm not interested. Then they're not interested then God isn't working in their lives. God isn't drawing them to himself. If they were interested, if God was moving in their hearts and drawing them to salvation, they couldn't turn it away. They couldn't come to Christ fast enough. Now, there's a second truth about salvation that Jesus went on to mention, and it's this. The first truth that we've looked at is this. Entering into his kingdom is like going through a narrow gate. The second truth about salvation is this. Following Christ means a narrow way of life. It's not just a narrow gate. It's a narrow way of life. Notice verse 14. He said, for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. Now in this statement, I want you to notice that though Jesus once again mentions that the gate is small, which in my translation says small, but it's really the same word for narrow. It's the same thought, but he adds something. He says something new. He states that the way is narrow that leads to life. In other words, by adding the words here, the way is narrow, the Lord is making a distinction between the gate, which admits someone into his kingdom, and the way, which is a reference to the road that the gate opens up to. There's a gate that's narrow, and that narrow gate opens up into a very narrow road. Not only is entrance into his kingdom narrow, but he's telling us that once you enter into a relationship with him, the Christian way of life remains narrow. It remains narrow. 
Here's how one Bible teacher explained the narrowness of the Christian life. He wrote, the Christian life is narrow from the beginning to the end. There is no such thing as a holiday in the spiritual realm. We can take a holiday from our usual work, but there's no such thing as a holiday in the spiritual realm. It's always narrow. As it starts, so it continues. It is a fight of faith, always right to the end. It is the narrow way, and on each side there are enemies. There are things oppressing us and people attacking us all along the very end. You'll have, to, you'll have no easy pathway in this world and in this life, and Christ tells us that at the beginning. If you have an idea that the Christian life is going to be difficult at the commencement and then later becomes quite easy, you have an entirely false view, he writes, of the teaching of the New Testament. It is a narrow way of life all the way. There will be foes and enemies attacking you right to the last minute. See, what, what Jesus is doing, and it's important for us to, to grasp this, is in telling us that the way of life for a believer is narrow, he's being very upfront with unbelievers. He's telling them right from the get-go that if they embrace him as king, here's what it's going to be like. If you choose to follow me, understand that you have to follow me on a straight and very narrow path and often a very difficult way of life. Now, let's think about that for a moment. Why would Jesus do this? You might think, why is he, is he trying to discourage these people from ever being saved? Why is he painting a picture of the Christian life as difficult? He might, isn't he afraid that people might, might react by saying, if the Christian life is so difficult, I'm just not interested in it. I'm not looking for a narrow, difficult way of life. I want a life of ease and pleasure and one of least resistance. But, but Jesus didn't do that. He wasn't concerned about that. He always set the standards high. Why? Because, now watch this, Jesus, unlike many today in their evangelistic approaches, Jesus never separated the initial experience of salvation from the rest of the Christian life. In other words, he never gave the impression that all that mattered was having your sins forgiven, being born again, and that everything else that followed was irrelevant. Because after all, the most important thing is to know you're going to heaven. That was never the way Jesus presented the gospel. Jesus never called anyone to just believe in him so that they could go to heaven. He called men and women to a life of following him, which meant suffering, self-denial, persecution, discipline, difficulties, and ongoing continuous battles, just the way his life was. We follow him. Another way to put this is to say that Jesus never called anyone to just make a decision to be saved apart from calling them to be disciples. Jesus never separated salvation from discipleship. That's not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in calling them to discipleship, he made sure that everyone knew exactly what they were getting into. In fact, before anyone became a disciple of his, the Lord made sure they understood the cost involved. Notice, let's go back to that passage I read before, Luke chapter 14. Notice what Jesus had to say to those in a crowd of people who were traveling with him, but, it, but many in that crowd had not yet committed themselves to being true disciples. Luke chapter 14, we just read this before. It says, verse 25, Now large crowds were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, So these were not all believers, these were not all disciples. Uh, lots of people had attached themselves to Jesus. And they were following him, some who wanted to be healed, others who, who liked seeing the miracles, some who were intrigued by this rabbi from Galilee. But Jesus understood that not every one of them had really become his disciple. And so he turned and he said to them, verse 26, now this ought to shock people, 
He said, if anyone comes to me, does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, let me just clarify that. The Lord never commands us to hate our family. You have to understand this in the context that that this is by way of comparison. What he's saying is, your devotion for me and your love and commitment to me has to be so deep and so right and so pure that, that by comparison... It makes your love for your family seem like hatred. So understand, I wouldn't want anyone thinking that Jesus said you've got to hate your family. In fact, when you become a believer, you love your family even, even more than you ever did. There's a depth of love there. So, so understand, he's just saying that by comparison, your love for your family will seem like hatred when you compare it to your love for me. In other words, he's saying that I'm the priority. I'm the priority. I must come first in everything. He goes on to say, Verse 27, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Carrying a cross meant that you're on the way to, to die. Self-denial, more than self-denial. I'm, I'm ready to, to abandon everything for you. And then he explains the cost of being a disciple. And he's, this is exactly what he's doing. He's saying this is the cost. Count the cost first before you make a decision. Know what you're getting into. I mean, the Lord is filled with integrity to tell folks this, and we ought to also. He said in verse 28, for which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation, is not able to finish all who observe it, begin to ridicule him, saying this man began to build and was not able to, to finish. He's saying in, in the context of a businessman, what kind of a businessman would set out on a venture without seeing if he had enough money and materials to complete it. We'd laugh at somebody like that. So Jesus said, and so you must count the cost of being my disciple. You must count the cost. He goes on to speak about a a king who sets out to meet another king in battle, verse 31. He said, Doesn't, won't this king first sit down and consider if his 10,000 men that he has to encounter, the one coming against him with 20,000 is enough? I mean, it would be silly to go to battle and not know if you, if you were strong enough, do you have a chance to win? And then he says in verse 33, so then none of you, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Now, in saying this, the Lord is not saying you, you have to sell everything you have first and then follow me. He did say that to the rich young ruler, but that's not the thought here. He's not saying that you have to give up your house and your cars and, and uh, all your clothes, your nice clothing to follow me. No, let me, let me explain it by quoting from one Bible teacher. He said, they were permitted to retain no privileges and make no demands. They were to safeguard no cherished sins, treasure no earthly possessions, and cling to no secret self-indulgences. Their commitment to him must be without reservation. In other words, he's talking about total surrender. You've got to surrender your life to me. That's, that's what it costs to be a disciple. That's what it costs to be a disciple. So the cost of following Christ means giving what? Everything. And Jesus wants them to know right up front what was involved. Jesus could easily have glossed over the challenges of the Christian life and focused on the many blessings. But then we would be coming to him asking why he deceived us. I am glad that Jesus had the integrity to tell us up front that following him would not be easy. Our time is nearly up for today, so let's continue studying this narrow way that Jesus described in the next verse by verse. Our teacher is Pastor Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. 
Pastor Steve has been the teaching pastor at Lakeside since 1981. These daily broadcasts are an expansion of that ministry produced by Verse by Verse Ministries. We are a faith ministry supported by the prayers and gifts of listeners like you. Our lesson today was the first part of a three-part message from Pastor Steve's series on the Sermon on the Mount. If you would like to hear the complete message without announcements, it is available on CD or cassette. Order yours by calling 727-441-1714. Leave your name and a number, and we'll call you back during regular office hours so that you can place your order. Our number again is 727 727- 4411714 If you would like to listen again to today's broadcast or a previous one please visit our website versebyverseradio.org We have several hundred of Pastor Steve's lessons available on the archives page Other resources include a free podcasting service and a newsletter That's versebyverseradio.org Most of the world tends to think of Christians as narrow-minded and ignorant. I'm afraid that is an image that we as a whole have tended to cultivate. And make no mistake, we do want to be narrow-minded about certain things. But as we will discuss on the next verse-by-verse, we need to watch out that our dogmatism is limited to God's revealed Word. I hope you can join us. You've been listening to Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. This program was pre-recorded. To learn more, including how to donate to this ministry, visit versebyverseradio.org. That's verse. We're here to give you strength between. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.